0: The following resource is from Christ Community Church. For more information, please visit LovingLord.org. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you've called us into the rest of Christ, that by coming to Jesus and being united to Jesus, we can, right now and for all of eternity, rest from the work of salvation. We praise You that Jesus finished that work for us on our behalf on the cross. And yet, Father, we also know that for those who are saved by grace through faith, You've given us work to do. And so I ask, Lord, that You would again be gracious with my brothers and sisters, be gracious with me, and indeed Your church throughout the world, Your true church throughout the world, that we might hear this calling to take the yoke of Christ, to take this glorious work You've given Your body, Your church to do, and that we would, by the power of Your Spirit, actually do it. That we would not be those who merely hear the Word and do not do it, but those who hear and do it. I ask, Father, that You would give us this strength in Your Spirit, give us this wisdom, and give us the desire. We do not do, Father... Because we do not want to do. And each of us knows that to be true. Most of us would recognize, Lord, that we are not ignorant of these truths. We just don't want to submit to them. And so I pray, Lord, that you would change our hearts. It is necessary for our hearts to be rightly changed in order for us to follow Christ. And so if there's any heart here this morning that has made a profession of faith but is not following Jesus, change that person's heart that they would follow Christ. If any of us have started following Christ, but we fall away, I pray you bring us back to that narrow path. And for those that know Christ and are following Christ, I pray for great encouragement, Lord, that we would know beyond the shadow of a doubt that our labor is not in vain. Not a moment of our work is in vain if we do it for your glory. And so bless us right now, I pray. Quicken our hearts to receive your word. Encourage our minds to understand it, and then set us on that narrow path, I pray, in Christ's name, amen. Well, I don't know if you're happy or or sad this series is ending. Some of you are like, yeah, let's move on, let's get back to a book. Uh, I don't know. It depends on how you've received it. I hope that it's been edifying and encouraging for you. I hope you have not been discouraged at all. If you have been, then, then maybe I've done a poor job and you need to forgive me for that. The title of our sermon is, Jesus' followers work in their rest. And you probably are thinking, how can someone work in their rest? Rest for me me means vacation. Rest means not working. And I know in the Western sense that's true, um, but there is a wonderful work in the rest of Jesus that we really want to get a hold of today. Um, If we haven't for these past several weeks that we might actually do it. Um, In Matthew chapter 11, if you're not there, please go there. Jesus is in his early ministry, the Galilean ministry where he started off in the north. He's still in that part of his ministry, and and he's he's beginning to reveal something quite extraordinary. He's saying to the people that God's given me control of all things. All things have been put into my hands. And not just all things, but the ability to reveal my Father and the gospel to those I choose to reveal him to. In fact, with your eyes, look at verse 27 here in Matthew 11. Jesus said, all all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. You see, in our our Lord's day, the, the Jewish religious elites, the scribes and the Pharisees, they taught that the only way you could know God the Father and the only way you could have hope of eternal life was by strictly obeying to the laws of God. And not just the laws of God, the Torah, which we see in the Old Testament, but 613 burdensome laws that the Pharisees had come up with on their own and told the people they had to submit to them if they wanted to have eternal life. In fact, a few chapters later in Matthew 23, this is what Jesus says of the scribes and Pharisees. He said, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat as a lawgiver. They didn't have that right. And then he said, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. Burdensome, toilsome regulations they required the people to do, or there was no hope of heaven and there was no hope of God the Father. So in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus comes along, as he does, and he turns their entire system of salvation by works upside down. Literally just spills it out in the temple and says, this is the wrong way. It's not a strict adherence to the laws of God that gets you in. And yet what's fascinating, you say, no, wait a minute. You started this series in Matthew chapter 5. And I remember, Pastor, you read from chapter 5 Jesus' words when he said, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, which one is it? Is it following the law or is it not following the law? Well, I hope that you are asking that question. Jesus does not say lawlessness is the path to righteousness and eternity. That wouldn't make any sense. He said that our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. It must be better than a strict adherence to the laws of God or man-made laws. But it is an obedience, my beloved, and I, and I hope you know this. It's an obedience from the heart. It's a desire to know God's laws and follow God's laws because you love God. And that is a righteousness, as we saw in Matthew chapter 5, what, seven weeks ago now, that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, for the past six weeks, we have been looking at, we've looked at actually six New Testament imperatives, six commands, basic commands that God gives to Christians that he expects, believe it or not, he expects you to actually obey. He expects you to know it. And in the power of the Spirit, actually do it. And I imagine some of you, for these past several weeks, if we are going to be really honest with each other, I imagine some of you have felt some conviction in looking at these six commands. Some of you maybe have felt even some guilt. And if you could be truly honest right now, some of you might even say, I, I-, I don't live like that. I'm not striving to live like that. And I have no desire to live like that. In your heart of hearts, some of you may be saying that, and you've been probably thinking or feeling that these commands we discussed to eat and pray and praise and and serve and grow and go have been burdensome to you. Maybe even toilsome. And maybe you've tried in your own strength and your own flesh to do some of them and they were hard and so you stopped. Stopped. He said, You know what? These are not providing me rest. You have made me anxious. You have discouraged me. You have caused me to be depressed, calling me to do all these things that I obviously cannot do. What if, though, my beloved, what if obedience to the commands of Christ actually can bring you rest? What if Jesus is not a liar? And he was very serious here in Matthew chapter 11 that if you come to him and you follow him and you obey him, you will find rest for your soul. What if that's true? Well, that's true, then I want to obey. I want to have that rest. Jesus offers us a wonderful motivation here. And since we started our series in Matthew 5, hearing from our Lord's mouth, I thought it'd be appropriate and fitting for us to have Jesus speak at the end of it too. In Matthew chapter 11, And what he offers here, my beloved, is is truly amazing. It's a secret. It's a secret on how to obey God and it not be burdensome. Jesus offers us Trinitarian insight on how to live a holy life that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees without it being burdensome or toilsome or heavy. In fact, he comes along and says, listen, You can have a righteousness infinitely better than theirs that is light and easy and brings you eternal rest. Do you want to know that? He has the answer here. I'm not not just making this up. This is what Jesus says. So I'm going to tell you how to live the righteous life with it being easy and light and restful. And I I want to do that by considering three things from the text, three real simple teachings from the text. One, Jesus is called to come. Two, Jesus is called to take. And three, Jesus is called to rest. Number one, Jesus says, Come to me. Number two, Jesus says, Take my yoke. And number three, Jesus says, Now rest. Rest now and rest for eternity. And that is the secret if you want to follow Christ without your obedience being burdensome. The theme of the sermon is this Jesus expects his followers to obey his commands, not earth shattering. (laughs) Jesus expects his followers to obey his commands and he expects their obedience to be easy, light, and filled with rest. He expects you to do what he says. He is king. He is God. But he wants you to do it with an easy, light, and rest-filled heart. And that is possible. Christ does not set us up for failure. Amen? Point number one, Jesus' call to come. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees, these are the religious elite elite in the time of our Lord, um, they tied up heavy burdens. It says they, they laid them on the people's shoulders and said, you must do these things. God's law, things that we've made up ourselves and made it law, and you gotta do these things if you want eternal life. You don't do them, no eternal life for you. Heavy weight upon them. And then Jesus comes on the scene and he says, don't listen to them. Instead, come to me. It's interesting, he says, Come to me. He doesn't say come to the law. He doesn't say come to a religion. He doesn't say come to some sacrificial system of do's and don'ts. He says you come to me. Come to the person, Jesus Christ. Come to who? To a friend, to a savior, to a king who desires to give you rest. Look at verse 28 again. Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. Jesus said, and I will, I'll give you rest. He has the ability and he has the desire to give your ridiculously anxious soul rest. And we are just a ridiculously anxious people. Even amidst all the peace and prosperity, how do we watch the news in the Ukraine and what's going on in Gaza and have anxiety here? How is that? There are bombs are not falling on us right now. And yet we are some of the most anxious people in the world today. Christ says, I have a solution for that. Come to me and I, Christ said, will give you rest. The word Jesus uses here for labor, it would probably better translated toil or toilsome labor if you were going to do a word-for-word translation. Now, work we know... Well, we should know. Some of you said, no, I don't like work. Work is good, right? Work is something that God gave Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall. Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to what? To work it and to keep it. So work is not sinful, my beloved. And most of you know that. Most of you actually enjoy work. But after the fall, work became, in many cases, Toilsome, burdensome—that labor that that wears down your body and your mind and your soul. Some of you know it too well. Genesis three seventeen. Yet God said to Adam, "Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life." And so Jesus is talking not just about work; he's talking about toilsome work, hard labor that wears us down. And he's talking about it here in the context of eternal life. The Pharisees and the scribes said, you got to work really hard. you got to get it right or there's no God for you. And Jesus comes along and says, listen, this, this is not good labor. In the first century, Jewish culture, it was strict obedience to the laws of God and the laws of man or there was no eternal life. In the 21st century, in our cultural moment, it's not, it's not the apprehension of a future eternal life. It's having it right now. Right? Our, our culture needs everything right now. And so we say, forget about the future. We want now. We want freedom. We want power. We want sex. We want money right now. In the evangelical church today, the gospel might be perverted to maybe even something like we've taught, the New Testament imperatives. You need to do them in order to be saved. Or you need to, you need to make sure you love one another and, and do that correctly. Or you've got to die to yourself. You've got to do certain things or there's no life for you. And, and some of us in the Western church, they, we hold on to what's called cheap grace, and we'll, we'll take the grace, but no following Christ, no obedience, and, and that's the way to eternal life. The point, my beloved, that Jesus is making is not the work itself. It's what makes the work toilsome, what makes work burdensome to your soul. I think that any work we do to obtain that which is not attainable becomes burdensome, right? Right? Anything that you do, that you set your mind to, that you start working for, that you know you cannot ever get there. In the context of eternal life, there's no hope of eternal life through our works. And so if you work really hard to have God, you'll never ever get there. And so the work itself becomes toilsome. Whether you're adhering to man-made laws you made up yourself or to the laws of God and the gospel, the godliest men and the godliest women in the history of the church have made their their best efforts and every single time they know they fall woefully short. They have what's called a burdened conscience because we know deep down we know whatever rules we set for ourselves whatever religion we follow whatever laws whether they're God's laws or man's laws we know that there's no way to make it to heaven apart from Christ. We know it's literally a dead end that it ends in death not life. If we try to work our way there. And therefore, it's a heavy burden. Christians know that God's standard for entrance is perfection, it is perfect righteousness. No sin of word or thought or deed your entire life. That's the standard. And every Christian who's followed Christ even a little while, we know that every law that we follow, every law that we obey, there are 10 that we're breaking. And even the one that we are following, that think we're doing a good job on, we know in our heart of hearts that it's nothing more than what? Filthy rags before a holy God. His standard is perfection. Your best deeds, my beloved, on your best days compared to the glorious perfection of God are filthy. You know that. Isaiah was right when he said, we all have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Or the Apostle Paul in Romans 3.23, we have all what? We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no work that you do that you bring before the Lord in your flesh apart from Christ that he says, well done, when he looks at it. Now, we like to tell people, we like to tell people in our cultural moment and even in the church that anything you set your mind to, you can absolutely do, including working your way to heaven. I mean, that is certainly a cultural mantra today. We tell them that if you try really hard, you'll make it. In the early 90s, I I coached a young man in football, high school football. His life dream was to play college football. And that was it. That That was his goal. His family, his friends, and many of his teachers said, But you always hear, if you set your mind to it, if you work hard, if you never give up, you will make it. This young man was small, 120 pounds. He was slow, uncoordinated, and unskilled. He worked harder than most on the team at practice and workouts, but he never got any better. During his senior year, I noticed his attitude change. The practices and the workouts had become burdensome to him. He was there, but he wasn't trying, and he seemed overwhelmed by it. Not because the practices or the workouts had changed, but because he realized he was never going to play college football. He could barely play high school football. It was sad, but what I noticed is that his efforts for four years straight were essentially washed away. And he realized that they had been done in vain. And so even though he was at practice and even though he was there as part of the team, he was burdened because he could not attain the goal that he had set himself to. My beloved, Jesus knows that this young man's desire to play college football, he had an infinitely better chance of doing that than the most holy, most godly man who have ever lived entering heaven on his own efforts. And so instead of Jesus lying to us like we do to one another, telling us things like as long as you set your mind to it, you will achieve it, he doesn't lie to us. He doesn't say, try really hard and you'll make it. He says instead what? He says, come to me. He says, you can't do it apart from me. He says, come to me. He cries out to all people in all of human history, come to me all who are what? Are laboring in vain, trying to make it to a place and to a person that you will never attain to on your own. And he's, what he's saying is this, I'm trying to appease your conscience. I'm trying to take the weight off of it. And so he says lovingly, stop. Stop toiling in your efforts to make it to my Father. Cease with the burdensome work you placed upon your shoulders to be good enough or holy enough or moral enough to have eternal life. He says, Try, stop trying to earn it You cannot, oh my beloved, do you know that? I mean, do you really, really know that? You have no hope apart from Christ as your savior. All the work that you've done your entire life to put God in your debt to make God happy, has no power to redeem your dead soul. So Christ says what? He says, come to me instead. Come to Christ as a sinner in need of forgiveness and grace. He says, come and abide in me and I will forgive you of your sins and I will grant you eternal rest. And Jesus is able to offer that to every single burdened soul. He's able to give us His work so that we can be declared righteous before His Father. As you know, Christ accomplished that work on the cross necessary for us to have eternal life. He did that. Jesus lived that perfectly sinless life that you could not and would not live. And then Jesus died that horrible sinner's death on the cross that we justly deserved. He did all that in our place so that he could. For all those who come to him and repent and put their faith in him, he could take his righteousness and hand it to you and say, now you're righteous too. Not because of your works, says, but because of my works. Not because of who you are, Christ, but because of who I am. He gives us righteousness freely by grace through faith. Romans 8, God has done what the law, listen, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh on the cross in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Oh, my beloved, that is such good news for your heavy burdened conscience. That's such good news for all your hard, toilsome labor that you're doing to make your way into eternal life. Christ gives it to us by fulfilling it for us. So Jesus says, come. Jesus says, be united to me, and I will give you rest for your soul. No more striving." No more heavy laden work. Instead coming, having, and enjoying Christ right now in his rest. My beloved, that's the first step. When you look at the imperatives we've talked about for the past several weeks, the first step of of following Christ and be obedient to Christ is coming to Christ and resting in his work and in his personhood not your work and not your personhood. Now, unlike the Western church, we hear the Western church here is come to Jesus and rest, and we hear that is as go to church once a week and then live as the rest of the world. No need to engage in the work of service or evangelism or disciple-making because rest means no work. At least that's how we hear it. Jesus reveals, I think, in our text here, and I don't think we read it like this he reveals that in our rest he expects us to work in coming to Christ and finding rest he expects you to labor not in vain not toilsome labor but he does expect you to labor in his kingdom for his glory are you still with me point number 2 jesus says come and take he says come to me number 1 and then come to me and take but what are we what are we supposed to take look at verse 29 We're supposed to take something here. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart. In other words, verse 29 is given to us to help us understand what verse 28 means. The invitation that Jesus makes to all mankind is to come to him, not to be slothful, not to be lazy, not to not work, it's a call here to discipleship. He says, come and follow me and learn from me and do the work that I've called you to do. It is a work that has rest in it. In fact, he says, come and, and take my yoke. He said, the only yoke that I know is an egg, so I don't even know what this means. A yoke a then was a, it was a large piece of wood that was strapped to an animal's shoulders right behind their head. And then to that, that piece of wood, uh, you would attach reins and usually a tool to it, like a plow or something. And you'd, you'd put that animal, usually an oxen, in the field, and it had the yoke on its back, tied the reins, tied to the plow, and you'd work the field. You'd be able to labor the oxen to do something here. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. You've got, I'm, I have work for you to do. He's going to put a yoke on you. You say, well, I don't like that. I don't want to be treated like an oxen or an animal. He's not. Yoke then was also synonymous for the law for both the Jews and the New Testament church. In fact, it was a common metaphor. And so when Jesus says to the people, Take my yoke upon you, he's saying, He says, Reject the yoke of the scribes and Pharisees. Reject the law as a means of salvation. And take the law, take the yoke that I'm giving you, that I've taught you, and walk in obedience. Walk in a very different way than they've called you to walk. That's why he says, take my yoke according to my teachings. And he says, what? Learn from me. Learn from me instead of them how you're supposed to live out the Christian life according to the law of God. And so he doesn't throw the law away. He says, don't follow their interpretation of it. Jesus says, follow my interpretation of it. And there are two incredible truths that come from this. Number one, Jesus' yoke is a better yoke than the scribes, the Pharisees, or any yoke you put on yourself. And number two, Jesus is a better teacher than the scribes and Pharisees. Let's look at how it's a better yoke first. Jesus says, my yoke is a, a better yoke. Jesus would say, my yoke is the best yoke. Now, again, the Western ear here is yoke, and you don't like it at all. You don't want anybody, right? The idea of freedom is no one puts anything on you, right? No work, no labor, nothing required of you. Any yoke for the Western mind is bad yoke. We want freedom. We don't want to be bound or tied to anybody, the Pharisees placed a yoke on the people they could not fulfill. It led to discouragement, anxiety, and depression. Some of you, some of you have a yoke on you right now. Some of your employers have placed a heavy yoke on you and you feel burdened. Maybe some of your teachers are professors. I hope not me, but some of you have been burdened by that. Some, maybe your parents have placed a, a heavy yoke. Um, more often times than not, though, the hardest yokes we place are the ones we put upon ourselves. We grab that big old piece of lumber and we throw it on our back and we strap ourselves down just like the oxen. You putting a yoke on yourself. And it makes sense. I mean, we're, we're creating the image of God. We're created to, to rule over and subdue the earth. And so part of our image DNA Is is to have purpose and meaning in our life. There's an interior drive for most people to do something, to work, to be successful. But after the fall, it was no longer for the glory of God, it was for the glory of man. It was for the glory of self. And that's why we, we find ourselves striving and pursuing that which is we want for our own glory, and that only brings us down. That yoke becomes so heavy we cannot bear it. Yokes to be what? That perfect mother. Oh, listen, with all your might, please. That perfectly loving father, that doting spouse that the scriptures call you to be. We work so hard and put a yoke on ourselves to be that model employee or that top student, that best friend, or maybe that vibrant church member. We take those yokes and we put them on ourselves, and then when we don't live up to them, we, we feel discouraged or, or anxious or burdened. And oftentimes, we then, well, it's, it's too heavy, so we just stop. Or we continue to labor under it, and it crushes us. Either way, it's not good. Now, Jesus' yoke does not advocate for slothfulness. It doesn't advocate for immoral li- living. Jesus doesn't say, listen, I know you're a sinner. You, you're just going to make a mess of everything all the time Anyway. That's not his yoke. He doesn't come along and say, listen, it's okay to be a terrible mother, unloving father, neglectful spouse, slothful employee, poor student, lousy friend, or disconnected church member. He doesn't say that. That's not his yoke. Jesus' yoke, my beloved, is a yoke of holiness by the power of the Holy Spirit to be the godly parents, godly spouses, godly friends Godly employees that God has called and equipped us to be. But Jesus' yoke is a call to be holy as he is holy because he's already made us holy. You're not working to be holy. You're holy because being united to Christ, you have been made holy. You have a new identity if you come to Christ. That's why he starts there. He says, come to me, I'll give you a new identity. The old you is dead, the you new now lives. You have a new heart, you have new desires, you have the power of the Holy Spirit. You are, if you're in Christ, you are objectively, now and forever, a son or daughter in the Father's kingdom. That's who you are. You're in the family already. You're part of God's eternal family, deeply loved, deeply adored by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, now and forever. In other words, my beloved, there's nothing you can do to get into the family. Christ brings you in. And therefore, any yoke you put on yourself to be that perfect mother or that doting father or that doting husband, it, it cannot earn you a place in his family. You get it through Christ. And if you have it, you cannot lose it. Oh, that is so good. In other words, your identity is secure. As a father, as a mother, as a friend, you're already in through the blood of Christ. And because your identity is secure, it means it's the most amazing thing. It means you can strive by the power of the Spirit to be that mother or father or spouse or friend or or student or teacher that you want to be, that God wants you. You can strive for that. But when you fall short, it won't cause you to be depressed or discouraged. And when you find yourself successful, you won't be gloating but give glory to God instead. It sets you free to pursue righteousness for the sake of Christ. So when you do that and you fall short, what do you do? You don't say, oh, I have an identity crisis. No, you seek forgiveness and you're healed and you continue to walk in righteousness. And when you're successful as a mother or father, what do you do? You praise God for the work he's doing through you in the spirit. And there's no boasting. Oh, wow, what a great place to be. Your hard work, not for your identity, but because of who you are already in Christ. I remember years ago reading a story about um, a, an elementary school girl who was adopted from a third world country and the family that brought her here when, when she finally made it after months and months of trying to get her here, they bring her to her home and they sit her down and they, they were explaining to her, you're now, you're now part of this family. This is your new family. And They said, we're your parents and these are your siblings. And they, said, and they were explaining to her, as part of this family, now you're going to be part of the life of this family with all the blessings and the responsibilities. And one of the responsibilities they gave to this young girl was to keep her room clean. Well, in a very short period of time, they realized something had gone awry. She became fixated on cleaning her room, convinced that if she did not keep it clean, they would not love her. Every morning when her parents would come into the room, it was immaculate. She'd be sitting on her bed and she would say, My room is clean, can I stay? My room is clean, do you still love me? And as as meaningful as these words were to her, it broke her parents' hearts. It took some time, but eventually this young lady began to realize that her parents really did love her unconditionally, regardless of whether or not her room was dirty. Or clean. And as she began to experience the grace, and it was the grace of her parents, her new parents' unconditional love, a love she never knew before, she began to grow in her love for them. And something extraordinary happened. She took off the yoke of working for their love and she took on the yoke of being loved already. And as soon as she did that, her room stayed clean but she no longer cleaned it in a toilsome, burdensome manner to earn her parents' love. She cleaned it because she wanted to. She cleaned it because she was expressing her love to her parents. It completely changed the dynamic in her life and in the life of the family. My beloved, unlike the yoke of the Pharisees, Jesus' yoke is a better yoke because it comes from It is born in us to work out of the love that we already have. The unconditional love we already have from God in Christ. It does produce labor, and it does produce fruit, really good fruit. But it does so from the foundation of love, not to to earn it. But Jesus says there's another reason his yoke is better. You probably saw this. Look at verse 29 again. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly, of heart. Now, those in positions of authority, they have yoke over us, right? I mean, our government officials do, parents, religious leaders, bosses. Um, anyone in a position of authority has the ability to take power and, and place it upon you in a, in a particular way. Um, the Pharisees were not known for being gentle and lowly. In fact, in, in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus said this of them He said, They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They loved the place of honor at feast and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. They loved the attention and they loved to exercise their power. Jesus said they tie up heavy, burdensome loads and put them on others' shoulders, but they listen. They themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. So they were filled with pride and they had no desire to serve. They were not gentle. They were not lowly. But Jesus comes along here. Now this is, remember who this is. This is the second person of the holy triune God. This is the son of God. And he comes along and he tells those who are listening in Matthew's day and us today, he says, listen, I'm gentle and lowly of heart. The creator of the universe, the one who spoke and made all that is seen and unseen says, I'm gentle and I'm lowly. Low position. Christ identifies himself as the servant of the Lord that a prop, the Isaiah had prophesied to centuries before. This is what Isaiah said of Christ hundreds of years before Christ came. He said, he will not shout. This is Jesus. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Why? Because he's gentle and he's lowly. The Pharisees were hypocrites. They were hypocrites. They taught one way and they lived another. Christ is saying, listen, come to me. I'm gentle and lowly of heart. And so he says, listen, not only is my interpretation better, but I have credibility for my interpretation of the law. I'm living it out. I'm showing you how to do it. I'm the type of teacher. I'm the type of master that you want to follow. I have the better law and I have the better way. And he was right. He did. He lived Christ lived as he calls us to live. He was and is the gentle, lowly servant of the Lord. Most of you probably heard of the great church father Augustine. Most of you know him for um, his literature and how he actually, his writings helped shape the Western church. What most of you probably don't know, though, is how he was considered as a pastor of his people, how he ministered to his people. He was the Bishop of Hippo in North Africa when the Aryan vandals came down from the north and started to invade in 427 AD. Thousands of refugees crammed into the city of Hippo in order to seek shelter and guidance from this great church father, Augustine. So many people packed in such small places back then led to disease and a plague broke out in the city of Hippo. Now, Augustine at that point in time, he was very accomplished and he had, he had money. So he had three choices. He could flee and he could have fled and been safe. Number two, he could have locked himself in his palace and just kept riding for the church future. Or there was a third option that he had. He could minister to the people. He could remain the bishop and the pastor of those who were in hippo. Which one do you think he chose? He chose number three. He continued to discharge the duties of his office. He ministered to the sick. He buried the dead. He mingled amongst the people. And what happened? In 430 AD, three months into the siege, he came down with the sickness. He caught a horrible fever and he too died. He died. He died what? As a gentle and lowly servant of the Lord. One of the greatest names in the history of the church in his finest hour, was not writing the city of God or confessions. He was ministering to people and gave his life for his people. He died serving as a lowly and gentle servant. Is it any wonder he had such a large following? Is it any wonder people were drawn to him? My beloved, Augustine was simply following his master, the true Isaiah 42, servant of the Lord. The man of what? The man of sorrows who knows our struggles. Christ knows your pain. He knows how hard it is. The true servant of the Lord who bore our shame because he knows our desperate need to be accepted and to be loved. The one who bore our sins on the cross. How lowly did Christ make himself? How far did he go to love you and serve you? Philippians 2.8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of what? Death, even death on a cross. That's how low Christ made himself to have you as his own. My beloved, Jesus is not a taskmaster. He's not a taskmaster. When we read his imperatives and his commands, it's coming from the gentlest, lowliest person to have ever lived, he is worthy of being followed. Of coming to him and wanting to obey him. He's worthy of it. He says, come. He says, take my yoke. And then he says, you'll have rest. Because Christ, the gentle and lowly servant of the Lord, wants you as a servant to have rest rest too I have one more point Jesus' called to rest look at verse 29 again Jesus said take my yoke upon you that's the work he's given us to do and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls that's at the very depth of your being it doesn't mean rest for your soul not for your body it means true rest true peace Shabbat Shalom, rest in peace in the depths of who you are. He said, you'll find rest for your souls, verse 30, for my yoke is easy and my burden, he said, is light. So in verse 28, he said, come to me like a child. Put all your faith and all your trust in me. Be united to me and I will set you free from the burden of working for your salvation. I will give you rest. And then he doubles back here and he tells us there's another aspect to this rest, one that's actually a product of the other. He says, because you've been united to me, because you are set free from working your way into eternal life, Christ says now you can enjoy peace in your work. Peaceful, satisfying, rest-filled work by bearing the yoke of Jesus Christ by essentially living as we're called to live as Christians what is that yoke that's what the Bible tells us about how we're supposed to live as followers of Jesus Christ we've looked at six of those big ones over the last several weeks what Jesus is saying is this his yoke is easy and the burden is light not because following Christ in this world is easier, light I mean, we know that. If you followed Christ for any period of time, you've experienced the persecution or the hardship that comes from you claiming Christ against the world that hates Christ. Jesus said to the disciples in John 15, 20, he said, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. He's not painting a story here that's not real. In Matthew 7, 14, Jesus said, the gate is narrow and the way is what? Hard. That leads to life and those who find it are few. You say, well, then which one is it? Is it easy and light, or is it hard and narrow? The answer is yes. It's yes. Following Jesus, following his commands, bearing his yoke, is easy and light, even in the midst of persecution and suffering now, because true Christians, and here's the penny that's gonna drop for you, that is utterly profound and very simple, because we want to. We want to. Following Christ is easy and light for the true Christian of heart because the true Christian in heart wants to follow, wants to live like and for Christ. More than anything else, Christ has become that person's life. The true Christian has been what? Born again. The true Christian has the power of the Holy Spirit, new hearts, new desires. And so for the true Christian, and the reason I'm saying that, my beloved, is because we've adopted a false form of Christianity here in the West. The true Christian wants more than anything else, and the deepest part of their being, in the depth of their soul, they want to follow and obey Christ for the glory of God. Your life. You would say the purpose of your life as a Christian is to follow Christ and obey Christ for the glory of God the Father. That's why the Bible says, unapologetically, that obedience to the New Testament commands, obedience to God is one of the primary ways that we can know, even know that we're actually saved. It was Jesus who said in John 14, 15, it, here, listen, he said, if you love me, what? Say it. If you love me, Jesus said, you will obey my commands. Not outside of grace. You're saved by grace through faith, but in grace you will obey me if you truly love me, if you're truly saved. That's, that short little verse is probably one of the hardest verses in the New Testament. Because the opposite's true. If you do not obey Christ, you do not love him. My beloved, God doesn't bring sinners kicking and screaming into eternal life. And once we get in, he doesn't lay this heavy yoke on us so that we can stay. God doesn't save people like that and he doesn't call us to obedience like that. God simply changes your heart. He gives you a new heart. And with a new heart, he gives you new desires. And with those new desires, guess what? You want to obey. You really, really want to obey. You want to know what it is that God's called you to do. And then you want to obey, and you can because you have the power of the Holy Spirit. You want to do what your heart desires most. And in Christ, that is following Jesus and obeying his commands for the glory of God. He said, this is is nothing new, Pastor. We know this. We know this, my beloved, but we really don't know it, do we? I mean, we know it. We say it, theologically we're accurate. You say, I got, I've got that doctrine, but we really don't because our disobedience reveals that there's something wrong with what? Our hearts. There's something wrong. Otherwise, our church, and I would say the church in the West, would be a dramatically different place. Radical obedience to the teachings of Jesus. Radical obedience. Not to be saved because you're already in In the west we say I don't want a master, I don't want a king. I want freedom from everything. In the western church we say I don't even want I don't want a savior who's gentle and lowly. I don't want to bow my knee to anybody and say, "Lord, thy will be done." I want the grace, I want the salvation, but I don't want to follow. And yet here Jesus is saying, "Take my yoke." Do the work that I've called you to do and you will have a rest that transcends all understanding. And so we actually work against our own rest when we don't follow Christ. We make ourselves anxious and discouraged and we struggle. You see, when you submit to Christ, when you truly submit to Christ and he becomes your life and you follow him and obey him, you're set free from all your self-assertions You're set free from you being Lord and Master over your own life. All that unrest of what? Contending desires. That is the problem, right? It's not that you don't want to follow Christ. You just want to follow other things more. It's not that you don't want to follow the law of God. You just want to follow your own law more. But when we submit ourselves to Christ and we follow Christ, we're set free from all those contending desires, all the weight that comes upon us from the other masters and the other kings that call us and vie for our attention. But we know the scriptures teach what you cannot love two masters. You love one, you'll hate the other. And that's the battle. The Roman 7 battle you have in your heart if you do not submit and follow Christ. That's why there is no rest, my beloved. There's no rest for the halfway Christian who says I'm saved but I will not submit to my savior. Jesus says, "Take my yoke and you'll do what I want you to do because you'll want to do it." Take my yoke in the love that I poured out in you, and you'll want to obey my commands because that'll be what your heart desires most. And then he says, if you do that, you're gonna be shocked. You're gonna have rest. You're gonna have peace. You're going to work in your rest. I, want, I, wanna, I wanna close by, by giving you two hypotheticals, two people. They're not real, but... They certainly could be real. One one named Mike and the other one named Karen. And I want to look at the six imperatives that we talked about very briefly with each of these people. And I want you to think to yourself, honestly, think to yourself, who am I more aligned with? Where am I on this Mike-Karen scale? Let's start with Mike. Mike is a successful software engineer. That, That fits here, I think. Works for a major tech company in the Bay Area. He's married He has three children. He loves his job and spends a lot of time mountain biking, watching movies, and following politics. He's a political junkie. He professes Christ and has been in church his entire life and attends church regularly, but he has no real involvement in the local body or its ministries. He's here for an hour, and then he's gone. His only exposure to the Word of God is on Sunday mornings from the pulpit, And even when he thinks the sermon's good, he makes no effort to do anything with it during the week. His prayer life is limited to grace before he eats, and his only focused time of worship is on Sunday mornings. But even then, he finds himself distracted more often than not when the pastor continues to preach on and on with little spiritual change week after week. He thinks that serving his employer and his family is sufficient as a Christian and he makes no real effort to grow himself or others in the body of Christ. He's satisfied with his giving in terms of missions as it goes out to the world, but pays no attention to those in his mission field. He does not pray for them. He does not engage them. And yet he is confident he's obedient to Christ. Mike, in many ways, is the typical Western evangelical Christian. Professing Christ, going to church, hearing, but not what? Not doing. Nominal prayer, rote worship, self-service, little growth, and no mission. Now, if he's a false convert, the yoke's going to be easy and light because there's going to be no conviction. If he doesn't know the Lord, then he's not going to be battling in his conscience whether or not he's obeying or not obeying Christ. But if he's saved, my beloved, if he's been saved by grace and indwelt by the Spirit then Mike's conscience is racked week after week after week. There is no rest. He's been captured by Christ, but he lives in disobedience to Christ. Instead of taking the yoke of Jesus, eating, praying, praising, serving, growing, and going, instead of taking the simple imperatives, he keeps his own yoke, and he lives as he wants to live. He does what he wants to do, and he finds no rest for his weary soul. Worse yet, my beloved, if Mike continues on this path of willful disobedience to the clearly revealed commands of Jesus, then he will hear Jesus say this to him on Judgment Day, Matthew 25, I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and imprisoned, and you did not visit me. And Mike will say, when did I not do these things? And Christ will say, when you didn't do it to the least of one of these, you didn't do it for me. And then Jesus will say to Mike, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That's Mike's version of Christianity. Let's consider Karen. I tried to make sure there was no name in our church. You go, oh, okay. (laughs) I don't think we have a Mike or Karen. Karen's single. She's a full-time student, and she works 30-plus hours a week to make ends meet. She enjoys reading, hiking, and the occasional thrift store excursion. She's been a professing believer for only three years, but her family, friends, and church see her as a mature sister in Christ. She feeds on the word daily. She studies it alone. She studies it with other people, and she prepares her heart before she comes on Sunday morning to receive the word from the pulpit. She listens, she takes notes, and then she spends the week examining her heart in light of the word before God to make any changes that the Spirit wants her to make. She finds herself praying regularly. She prays alone. She prays with other people in the church and she gathers on Sunday mornings to pray with the body of Christ. She strives to worship God in all that she does and she makes a high priority of the Lord's Day. She sets it apart for rest and for worship. And so when she gathers, she gathers and she really prays and she really sings to the Lord and she really is fed on the Word. She doesn't miss unless she's sick or out of town, because she knows how sacred this gathering is for herself and for others. She is a servant of the Lord who strives to see and meet the needs of her brothers and sisters in the church, and she loves them how? As she herself would want to be loved. That's how she loves, as she wants to be loved. She uses her gifts and talents to grow the church, She speaks the truth in love, coming along her brothers and sisters, wanting every single person to mature into that image of Jesus. She has a heart for the lost. She's constantly praying for missionaries overseas, and she's praying for the lost in her mission field. She doesn't just pray for them, though, she engages them and she seeks to bring them one step closer to Christ. She's a missional Christian. Not only do all those around Karen find her to be a true follower of Jesus Christ, someone that Jonathan would say, a visual Christian, they can see her, they see Christ on her. But they also notice in Karen a supernatural rest, a peace that transcends all understanding, and they can't figure it out because she works harder than anybody else in the church, and yet she seems to rest better than anybody else in the church. She's an oxymoron that way. But you see, Karen understands that her labor for the Lord is not toilsome and it's not heavy because she knows, no matter how imperfect it is or how insignificant it might seem, she knows that her labor in the Lord is never, ever what? In vain. She knows it lasts for time and eternity. She knows this. She knows that by obeying Christ... In the power of the Spirit, she'll be like that tree in Psalm 1. That tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And so Karen's labor is easy and light because she serves, listen, she serves and sacrifices in her rest. She labors in her rest. She rests in knowing how precious she is to God in Christ. She knows how deeply loved she is. She works not to make herself righteous, but because she's already righteous in Jesus. And so she wants to work for his name. She rests in knowing that Christ, her master and king, is gentle and lowly and worthy of being served. And so she wants to serve him. She rests by taking his yoke and replacing it with her own. She eats, she prays, she praises, she serves, she grows. And she goes because she wants to. She wants to. No one has to ask her. No one has to beg her. No one has to guilt her. She wants to. Because deep down, my beloved, being united to Christ, she knows that the work she does fills the universe with the glory of God. And she knows that's the greatest work we can do. Work for Christ that fills the universe with the glory of God. She knows. She knows she will hear Christ say to her, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter my Father's joy. Enter my Father's rest. She knows it. Do you know it? Are those words yours? Because you've come to Christ, you've taken the yoke of Christ, and you are laboring in your rest for Christ. It's a yes or a no, not I don't know, maybe, I hope. You want to know. Well done, good, and faithful servant. You want to know. As we close this series, eat, pray, praise, serve, grow, go, what it means to follow Christ, I want to ask you, and actually we're going to send you out something to do this. I want you to conduct a a sober spiritual inventory of your life. I shared with you at the beginning of this series, I think that the Western church has duped itself into thinking that the consummation of Christianity is gathering, sitting, listening, leaving, and that's it. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible sees those captured by Christ, captured hearts, that want to follow him and serve him and work for him. We're not an exception to the rule, my beloved. We can't say, well, we're so different here at Christ Community Church. We are in this cultural moment. If you're struggling with one or more of these six imperatives, remember, they're commands, they're not options. If you're struggling with them, then I want you to hear the secret that Jesus gave you today to righteous living go to Jesus rest in Jesus take his yoke and then in your rest work like you've never worked before in his rest work like you've never worked before be obedient like you've never been obedient before My beloved, listen, here's the great news. If you're in Christ, you get to rest for all eternity. All eternity, you will have a rest that is unmatched here. So shouldn't we want to enter eternity tired? Don't you want to go into the presence of God exhausted because of all the labor that you did in his name for his glory in the rest of Jesus Christ? I would say yes. I would say yes. I think you too. Eat, pray, pray, serve, grow, go. In the rest that God gives you. And if you follow Christ and obey his commands, you will find rest now, believe it or not. I know it's you'll find rest now and you'll have rest for all eternity. I'm done. That's it. Do you believe that? Let's pray. Father, forgive us for this all-elusive rest. Forgive us, Lord. We seek it in all the ways that do not provide rest but anxiety, discouragement. Oh, Lord, I ask that you would be wonderfully gracious with this beautiful church. And that every member here without exception would experience the rest that Christ offers in going to him. And in that rest that we have in Christ that we would put down our silly yokes. All the work that we do either to appease you or to bring ourselves glory, we put it down and we take up his yoke and we would do the work that he's called us to do. And then I pray, Lord, that you would Give us that rest in our work. And as we work for the Lord and experience that rest, I pray we would tell others about it. We would encourage each other to that end. Father, only you can do this work by your Spirit. I pray that you would take the teachings that have been brought forth these past several weeks and make them real to us. Cause us, Father, to submit to them because we want to. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Christ Community Church is a Reformed Baptist church in San Jose, California. If you'd like more information on our church, please visit lovinglord.org. From there, you can find service times, weekly gatherings, our sermon archive, and other resources. For video content, please visit our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you again for listening.